and they can start the party at Scotland. That's a brilliant goal from Gary Jones. And Henderson, oh, what a goal! Welcome to the RochdaleAFC.com podcast. My name is Dean and I'm joined as always by Chaff. Chaff, how are you, mate? Yeah, not too bad, mate. Thank you. We've also got Ryan with us as always. Ryan, how are you getting on? Yeah, good. Thanks, mate. And Luke, welcome back, mate. How are you doing? Cheers, mate. All good, thank you. Good stuff. Uh, we've also got uh, another special guest with us today. Uh, the club's first ever chief executive and a supporter for a, a slightly longer time than the rest of us, shall we say. Um, Francis Collins. Francis, thank you very much for joining us tonight. Okay. So we're going to get into um, sort of a, a sort of half-season review with Dale having not played for the last few weeks and then we'll, we'll sort of discuss the situation at the club over the last few weeks with the COVID um, postponements and then we'll speak to Francis about his, uh, his previous role at the club and, and perhaps what it was like supporting Dale uh, in those sort of dark days before the likes of uh, me and Chaff and Ryan Luke came along. So, um, Ryan, I'll come to you first, sort of, as a, to, to look back on the season as a whole, where we are at the moment. Um, has it gone better or worse than you were expected or pretty much pretty much what you were expecting? Probably as, it, as I expected. I think I said in the pre-season one that we did that I thought we'd finish around the relegation spot, but not necessarily in it. And I think there's been... Really good highs. You think of Plymouth away, um, a couple of others where we've, you know, bounced teams. But then there's been games where we've, we've been battered ourselves. Um, I think there's a couple of players that have surprised me, good and bad. Um, but I think on the whole, I think the season's gone as expected. But I'm still positive about the way we're playing and, and where we are as a as a club and a team on and off the pitch. So, um, yeah. Yeah, I'd like better, but I think it could have been a lot worse. Uh, Chaff, what what would you say are the main sort of positives we can take out of the season so far? I know we are struggling sort of towards the bottom of the table, but there have been moments that have given supporters hope, haven't there? Especially the games at, at Plymouth and Wigan. Yeah, but they're the two sort of standout positives, aren't they? The fact that we took them on and we, we went and got a lot of goals and we hammered them both, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, other positives, um, I think there's a couple of players that have, that have come in and done really well, like uh, Hayden Roberts, a uh, big positive. Uh, Matt Lund is another big positive for me. Uh, he's chipped in with uh, a few more goals than I would have expected. Um, the signing of Stephen Humphreys is a big positive as well, even though he's been injured, because um, he's come in and he looks twice the player he was when he was on loan, um, even if it's only been brief so far. And... Yeah, they're the main positives that I can think of. The fact that we've we've got a football club, to be perfectly honest, and it still seems to be in a pretty safe position despite the pandemic, that's also the probably the biggest positive of the lot. Yeah, there were certainly some worrying moments, weren't there, before football came back. And I suppose it's still going to be worrying moments in the future as well. Luke, what have been some of the sort of negatives from the season so far in your eyes? I mean, there have been some games where we've been very frustrated afterwards, to say the least. Yeah, I think not really learning from our mistakes in, in seasons gone by and, you know, even 
in games this season. I think we still kind of seem to struggle with set pieces, defending them and defending balls into into the box. It still seems to be our kind of Achilles heel somewhat when it comes to kind of conceding goals. Um, and I was looking at the league table before, before jumping on here and it's not like we're conceding more goals than anyone else in our around us. Um, so you see, it kind of makes it even more frustrating because if you could if you could cut that out of our game, you know, it could probably take us up to, you know, probably more of a, a mid-table position, uh, possibly. So that's been frustrating. Uh, it's been frustrating at times when we've not really kind of adapted in games and we still kind of persisted with that, you know, passing football that I am a fan of, generally speaking, but um, just not adapting in games to kind of give us the best opportunity to actually go and win it and then reverting back to type, uh, you know, for the following match. That's been a little bit of frustrating as well. Yeah, that's, that's pretty much how I see it as far as the negatives goes, mate. Francis, what about yourself? It's always sort of interesting because I, I hear what these guys think um, pretty much every week, but I, it's always good to get a sort of different perspective. How did you see the season going uh, before we kicked off and how do you think it's gone so far? Uh, well, I agree with Chaff that we're fortunate to have a club still to support. And that's the that's the main positive. I didn't really have any predictions for the start of the season because you just didn't know what to expect with the situation the country was in. But now we're at the halfway stage. I've got to be honest and say I'm quite unimpressed. I think the home form is dreadful, and there's no pace, no width. We don't have any goals in us, and then we go away to Plymouth and Wigan and hammer them. It doesn't make any sense to me that. So I just think we need more pace, more width. And then I think we'll be all right. Because I think individually, the first 11 that we've got are actually quite good players, but they're not been knitting together very well as a team, I don't think. Yeah, we sort of struggle with a bit of a lack in depth, don't we? And I think a few injuries here and there, um, and we start to look like quite a weak league one side. Um, Ryan, one well, player... We've got three out with the COVID, haven't we? Sorry? Apparently we've got three out with COVID. Oh, for this weekend? Apparently, yeah. Well, I didn't know that. That's... Very worried. I, I know one of them's Humphreys, but I don't know who the other two are. I saw Humphreys tweeted that he was back in training. Um, oh, right. I don't know whether I don't know whether he'll be considered fit enough if he's only trained for a few days. I, mean, I, know, I know I know who hasn't caught it, and that'll be a lynch because he can't catch anything. <laughs> <laughs> um, Ryan, one player we will need to replace in that starting eleven um, over January will be um, Talaji Bolo, who's gone back to. Arsenal now after his loan spell uh, wasn't exactly um, the most memorable loan spell, was it? No, I thought he started off pretty well. I think when I watched his first couple of games, I thought we've got a decent player here. He works good as Norrington Davis, obviously. But I thought he was a decent player. And then as time's gone by, he's he's been in, out, in and out of a team, but he's come out of a team because of really poor games. And I think his poor games have been, you know, he's been the worst player on the pitch by a country mile. So I think, yeah, he goes back. Disappointing. Came with a pretty big reputation. You know, we'd read that he'd played for Arsenal the 23s a few times and he'd, he'd done well there and he, he sort of just not adapted to, to League One. And I'd be surprised to see him get another loan at this level. I think he'll probably have to either drop down a bit further or stay in and around the, uh, the sort of development squads at Arsenal and see what happens from there. But yeah, I, I wouldn't have him back. Yeah, Chaff, obviously, we will probably be in the market for a left-back now. Um, are there any other areas of the squad you'd like to see strengthen during the during the January window? Uh, yeah, I think we've brushed upon it a couple of times. I'd like to see uh, 
a creative midfielder or a creative sort of final third player come in. Um, somebody with pace, as Francis said before, because uh, I think as a as a as an eleven, I think we lack pace quite considerably compared to a lot of other teams. Um, I know we've got Bar, but Bar's still in and out of the side, still maybe not a, a first team starter. Um, but I'd, I'd like somebody who can create um, from wide areas. I'd like I'd also like a a bit of a hard man centre midfielder as well. Um, somebody possibly in the in the Peter Cabana role um, to protect the back four, um, which might free up Aaron Morley a little bit, um, and possibly stop us getting overrun in midfield a little bit. Um, and obviously a left a left back is essential now that Ball has gone back. It was essential before the season started. We thought we had the answer with Baller, but it's not turned out to be. So yeah, those are the, the key areas for me, I think. Yeah, I tend to agree with that. I think I said something similar on Twitter the other day, um, but but made the comparison to Keith Keane, perhaps instead of a Peter Cavana. But both played very similar roles, didn't they? It's sort of a, a similar mould of player we're both looking for there. Um, Luke, what what do you think needs to change to make sure that we can sort of retain our League One status this season, providing you know the rest of the season does go ahead? And we'll we'll touch on that in a moment. But uh, what changes would you like to see for us to be able to? to nail down that League One spot for next season? big one is our own form. Our own form, performances and, and results is, is the big one. If we can, if we can change that, um, I think that keeps us up because I don't think the away form has been too bad. Um, you know, our best results of the season have come away from home. And um, I think quite how do you change the, the home form? I'm not so sure. I think it is about kind of um, having more than that plan A and, and having a B and a C to go to as well. Um, but that's going to be kind of dependent on the squad of players that we're going to have available to us as we, you know as we go into the you know the latter parts of the season. So um, it's going to be an interesting one, really. If we can keep everyone fit, you know, we can change the home form. I'm confident that we'll stay up. Um, but you know, like like we've kind of experienced this season, you have a few injuries and it really does kind of weaken us. Um, I think kind of speaking to a lot of Dale fans, I think everyone's happy with. We're starting eleven when we've got a fully fit squad. Um, I think a lot of fans are confident that that squad can compete in League One. But it's just what happens when you do start getting your two, three injuries, and um, the players that are coming in aren't quite up to that that, that level. So uh, it'd be nice to get a couple of players in. Uh, I don't know if that's going to be doable or not financially, but it'd be nice, um, and I think that'd help us kind of then have more options uh, with regards to having a plan B and a plan C. Um, but yeah, I mean, just to reiterate, if we can kind of improve our home form, I think that keeps us up. Yeah, Francis, sorry to sort of drop you in at the deep end with a couple of big questions here, but uh, where do you stand, right. where do you stand on BBM um, as things stand? Obviously, I think the majority of fans have warmed to him at times, but been frustrated at times by what Luke's alluded to there with sort of the lack of lack of Plan B and Plan C. Um, where do you think his future is? Where, what are your sort of overall feelings towards BVM at this moment in time? Well, I hope his future is with us at the moment, this moment in time. I mean, I know there's question marks, but I don't think now in the world, what the world, the way the world is, you want to be changing your manager. I think it's the last thing we want to be doing. But I'd like to see him a bit more. Uh, he's like the opposite of Keith Hill. <clears throat> he's very, very cautious, but he's a really nice bloke. So it's it's sort of like we've gone from one extreme to the other. So I'd like to see him be a bit nastier. And a bit more attack-minded. 
Yeah, it's a good point to be fair. I never really considered it, but like you say, Hill at times was perhaps too nasty and uh, a little bit too attack-minded as well at times. So, yeah, good point. Um, so, we'll we'll touch on sort of the situation at the club and in football as a whole as well. Over the last few weeks, Dale have had two games suspended due to a uh, COVID. Not an outbreak, I don't think. I think it was just that the squad had to self-isolate after one or two te- positive tests. But... Um, Ryan, it does sort of throw the whole season into question, doesn't it? Because we're seeing a lot more positive tests in the Premier League and in other football league clubs, a lot more games being postponed. Uh, we've also seen the club doctor, Wesley Tensel, uh, come out and say that he, he feels that circuit breakers are the right thing for football at the moment. Is that something that you agree with? I don't know if it is. I, I, I don't know what a circuit breaker would do necessarily because the players who would pick up Corbyn who were still playing, you'd imagine would still get COVID. They weren't because we'd still be doing this. They wouldn't be going to the training ground together, but we'd still be doing whatever they're doing away from football and at home. So I, I think if you go to a circuit breaker of two weeks, I think that then gets extended to a month probably. And then you're talking about probably curtailing the season eventually again. So I think you've got to do one or the other. You either carry on and play or you cut it good and I don't think that's necessary at this stage I don't think it's there's been a few postponements yeah us being one club who've had to do it but I I wouldn't agree with that and I, I don't think it's necessary yet I don't think it will be I just think sort of crack on I guess well, Chaffer, are the players sort of being put at risk um, by this I mean we've seen some reports that, that some players are still suffering quite a few weeks and months after um, sort of being testing positive. Um, do we have to think about like, you know, the safety of the players as much as anything right now? I think the safety of the players is taken into account um, throughout football, throughout the, the whole sort of process. But um, going back to what Ryan says, it, it, I'd, I'd agree with, with Ryan that I don't think it's quite Time yet, but I also find it difficult to to not take on board the club doctor's comments as well. Uh, somebody who's in the right in the middle of it, um, looking at it from a medical perspective, which we obviously can't sort of look at it from that side. Um, it's, it'd be hard to disagree with somebody who's saying that it's a, it's a risk for the players, um, which he basically has done. Um, so. The test, it's, we don't know what the testing's like. Um, it's probably a lot less than what the Premiership is. I think lower league players are probably being put more at risk than what the Premier League players are due to what we'd have probably a lot less testing than what they do. Um, so, I, yeah, I don't know. It's a difficult one. I'd like, obviously, like everybody else, I want football to continue for as long as we can um, for our own entertainment. Well, if you can call it that sometime. But for our own means, um, but at some, if it carries on getting worse, then a decision may well have to be made. Well, well, I'll touch, and I should have said this in my answer, to be honest. But I think the EFL announced today or yesterday that clubs are going to be tested twice a week in the EFL now. I think the PFA are footing the bill, so I think that'll help, obviously. So. I think with all that's coming in, I still think, yeah, you listen to Wes, the doctor, and I think he said it's inevitable. I don't know if he did he give his opinion on it. I can't remember, but sort of, 
the testing's coming now for for us and all the clubs in the EFL, so that should wean out any any positives and just get them out of the club, and, and hopefully everyone else is all right. Yeah, I think he. I don't think he said. It, I think it was um, David Bottomley who said it was inevitable. I think it was um, Dr. Wesley Tenzel who said uh, that, that he felt it was the right thing to do. Um, but yeah, I suppose we'll see, won't we? It looks like the, the football league are going down a route of testing more rather than than looking for a circuit breaker. So we'll see what happens in the next few weeks. Hopefully, we'll start to see fewer positive tests. But it seems unlikely if if the, if the route is going down uh, of testing more. Um, Luke, I wanted to ask you, obviously this means a more congested fixture list than ever for Dale as well. Um, we've spoke already about the fact that we've got a pretty uh, small squad. Uh, are we going to be seeing a lot more of the youth players? How do you think we're going to gonna, gonna cope with, with so many fixtures coming thick and fast with that smaller squad? That's a tell, really, isn't it? Because when you know when you're on a good run, you kind of I think you know you want to kind of play slightly cheesy because you've got the momentum. Um, you hear a lot of players come out and say when there's been a bad game, it is a positive that there is a game that follows on a Tuesday because you know they're not mulling over it all week and they're able to kind of get back out there and um, you know recover, you know recover really. Um, but it's like I say, it's tricky. Um, it does worry me because um, we said it all all season. I think because the squad is so small. Um, I'd like to think that the younger players will be better off for the second half of the season than what they have been for the first half because they've been able to kind of they've had that exposure now. The likes of you know Briley and whatnot, they'll be training with the first team all day all the time. Um, they'll be better prepared after the kind of exposure that they've had so far. Um, so they might be better placed kind of playing for the second half of the season if they need to. Um, that is me trying to look at the positives of it, but that's the big worry. Um, you know, are we going to be able to compete if we've got injuries, if we've got positive COVID tests? You know, um, are we going to be able to play Saturday, Tuesday, Saturday, Tuesday and compete and, and win games and pick up the points that we need to, to stay in the league? Um, I hope, we, I hope we, are, we have got enough, but a lot will depend on kind of that, I think. Francis, sort of touching on the um, the financial impact of this, which we, we did a few minutes ago, of course. Um, 375,000 uh, rescue package, I think it was. It works out as around that for us. Um, is it quite lucky that we had such a successful financial season last season, given what's happened this time around? Definitely, yeah. Um, I think the... Can you hear me all right? Yeah. Oh God, I've, I've missed about two and I popped out for a glass of wine. I hope you don't mind. <laughs> no, that's fine. I'm, I'm on the furlough. I beers with him, but has decided against it for some reason. Sorry. Right. I'm on the furlough, Merlot. <laughs> I think the uh, 375,000 is probably. Well, it's not a lot, really. I don't, I don't know exactly what our overheads are per month, but I would imagine it's in the region of 150,000. So that's two and a half months roughly, um, and we've been shut down now for nearly a year now, isn't it? So, I think the Matheson sale was very important. I think without that, that I think without that, we're going to struggle big time. And the cup run, I mean, is it about a year since we played Newcastle now? Yeah, just over a year since the since the home game. Right, so we had the United money, the Newcastle money. So we we were quite fortunate with the events leading up to the lockdown, um, which most clubs in our level won't have had that same luck. 
and we are quite well run. So, on balance, I think we won the better clubs to uh, face such a lockdown that we've had compared to, let's say, Oldham or Macclesfield or whoever else. And we thought we're very fortunate, really. Yeah, I suppose if it had come sort of a year earlier, we'd be really struggling, wouldn't we, given the, some of the noises that came out of the club at the time? Yeah, well, you think of all the money we wouldn't have got had it come a year earlier. That's the frightening thing. Yeah. So you don't, you don't like to choose when, we have, when you have a pandemic, but if I could have chosen, I probably would have picked the one after, you know, after the Rotherham win. <laughs> yeah. yeah, to be fair as well, it was quite a good way to sort of bow out on the pitch as well, wasn't it? Because... We had the memories of probably one of our best performances of the season as well. To, to stay. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So we'll move on to your sort of um, sort of the history, um, sort of the the, the years before uh, me and Chap and Ryan were going to jail. Um, we we obviously spoke quite a lot during the first lockdown about some of our favourite teams and favourite players and stuff from from over the years, and we were hoping to get some of your sort of insights for players that we don't remember. But um, first of all. Uh, how long have you been going to Dale and what would you say have been sort of the biggest changes within within the club and within sort of lower league football as a whole in that time? Cool, that's a big question. Um, well, I've been watching nearly 40 years and if, I mean, it's a different era back then. If, if your last, if, if you went to a game in 1989 and then came back and went to a game in 2017 and you'd missed all that time, you wouldn't recognise it. It's that different. Um, the style of play, it's more exciting in a way back then, but now it's much, much better. Um, but we were awful back in the end, we were really, really bad. Um, and today, we've seen players like who've gone on to be internationals. Uh, back in those days, it was, I mean, journeyman's probably the right word, but they weren't even as good as that, some of them. So it's, um, you lot don't know you're born. <laughs> I'm telling you, you don't. <laughs> Do you think Bloody whippers, rappers, all of you. It was something that I, I spoke to Mark about when he came on as well. But do you think that maybe some fans of our sort of generation have a little bit more of a, an entitlement when it comes to Dale because we're used to seeing a little bit more success compared to those those darker days? Uh, I wouldn't say you've got more entitlement. It's always um, one of my bugbears is that a fans forum and a fan stands up and says, I've been coming here for 52 years. As all that makes his question just a bit more important. It doesn't make it any more important at all. Whether you've been coming two years or 52 years, you're still a fan. So you're just lucky that you started when you started. So all fair play to you. To be fair, I think I think um, me, Chaff and Ryan got a few years of... Uh, me, Chaff and Luke, sorry, got a few years of grimness. Ryan just came in at a perfect time, really. He's never seen us be really bad um what were what was it like seeing us in those times when we really were truly bad and applying for re-election and stuff what would you say what would you say sort of stood out about how bad we were at that time what were some of the memories you have and some of the stories there's one, one particular game we played Doncaster I think it might have been New Year's Day about 1984 and <clears throat> it was a good game actually ended up a three-all draw which was a fantastic result for us at the time because they were going well and I got a new coat for Christmas so I turned up in my new coat, but I lent on the wall behind the net at Sandy Lane. These days you're not allowed to, but in those days, if you're young in those days, you lent on the wall or you sat on the ledge at the back of the Sandy Lane. And you weren't allowed to run around on the steps like they do now. Um, and I was behind the wall and the pitch was like an absolute mud bath, proper mud bath. 
But the one thing that like World War One on that picture was that bad. It was absolutely dreadful. <laughs> and I'm sat, sat there. What used to get? Used to get. Um, what do you call it? Like when the ball pings around in the goal mouth. Um, yeah, proper goal mouth scrambles where everyone dives in on it. And we had a player called Vernon Allen, who wasn't very good, should we say. In fact, it was bloody awful. And, um, and the ball was just pinging around, and it suddenly landed on the goal line. And the keeper was, no, he's floundering in the mud, the keeper. And I'm sat right behind, standing right behind the goal. And Big Vern sees the ball sitting on the, like a golf ball on a cow pat. And he lunges in with his right foot. And he manages to <clears throat> go under the ball, which just sort of rose up about three inches, then dropped in exactly the same spot. And he covered everybody behind the net in mud. <laughs> I got home and I got bollocked from my mum. That new coach is ruined. You've only had it a week. That's um, <laughs> all what had happened. She said, you wouldn't believe me. <laughs> she didn't think anyone could be that bad. So that's, that's, we don't, you don't get stuff like that these days. But it made it good fun back then. No, so that, that, it was something that was discussed on the forum, wasn't it, recently about sort of, um, should we say the social side as well of going to the football was certainly different then because there was no there was no podcast, there was no forum. It was sort of going to the pub after the game and, and chatting about it with your mates more than it is now. All you had was the Rapture Observer and C-Facts. That was it. On the programme. Which wasn't very good back then. I didn't do it. <laughs> what kind of crowds were we getting back then? Ooh... We'd average about 1,700, 1,800. But that's taken into account that you get Burnley turning up with 5,000. So when you, when, you, when you weigh it all up, we're probably getting about 1,300, 1,400 home fans. And in those days, Wilbert's Lane was a terrace, so you used to walk around onto Wilbert's when we shoot towards Pearl Street, then walk around at half time to Sunday. Because we always used to shoot towards Sunday Lane, second and a half. And if it was nil at half time, you thought we've got a chance here. That's always, always the feeling. But you'd, you'd always go around to Pearl Street, used to be a terrace that used to come around onto Ulbert's, and there's like a little no man's land where insults would be traded between opposition fans, which was quite humorous as I seem to recall. Yeah, I was, was going to say, when you could walk around to the other side and things, and you had teams like Burnley and other teams around us, it, was, it would have been the hooligan days, I'd imagine. Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. It was quite hairy. As a kid. Well, um, ooh. Going away was pretty, it was always the mining towns over the world, so Doncaster, Chesterfield, Scunthorpe. They were, when you're an eight-year-old or ten-year-old lad and you're walking down Sandy Lane and these miners are coming towards you, it's either the miner strikes or whatever, they're like six foot seven, hands like shovels, and you just think, Jesus, look at the size of it. And it was just worrying, but when you go to away games, you cover up your colours, you wouldn't, uh, Burnley in particular, you cover up. You'd always park at Townley Park facing towards Bakewell because you sometimes might need to run away. And <clears throat> I had a mate actually, I could name his name because he's currently dead, but he was called Colin. And he, uh, <laughs> he, used, to sell, he used to sell scratch guards in um, opposition pubs around the grounds. And how he got away with it, I'll never know. But went to Burnley in about 1992, 93, something like that, in the cup, second round. Big game. They were second about 1,200 probably. And we parked up at Townley Park, walked down towards that big junction on the corner of the ground. There's a big pub on the left called something like the Brunswick or something. And he said, right, I'll go in there and sell my scratch cards. I said, Colin, don't be stupid. You get absolutely battered. Yeah, I'll be right, don't worry about it. So anyway, 
And then we watched the game, it didn't turn up, and we thought, oh, where's he gone? And after about, oh, I don't know, 25 minutes, their right back was a fellow called John Francis, who you probably haven't heard of, and he raked Jimmy Graham down the back of his leg with his studs. He knows they probably used metal studs in those days. And the, the wound was that bad, an ambulance had to go onto the pitch to get him off the pitch and take him to hospital. And he ended up having about 25 stitches in the back of his leg. And I don't, think, I don't even think John Francis got a booking for it. That tells you how the game has changed. Anyway, at the end of the game, Colin Hamm turned up and we thought, oh, what we do? I'm not, we're not waiting around here. Crikey. So we just went home. And I rung him up at home the next day. I said, oh, what happened? We didn't see you in the game. He said, oh, he said you were right back in that pub, you know. He said they launched me through a window onto the road and I passed out. He said, when I came around, I was in the back of an ambulance and Jimmy Graham was sitting next to me. He said, he goes, oh, I couldn't believe it. He said, fantastic. And I right, go chat with him. <laughs> Can you imagine that happening today? Unbelievable. What were, some of the, what were some of the sort of standout games from that area? Because I know there's a game, isn't there, where we went, did we go down to nine men and get a win at Turf Moor? Can't yeah. imagine what yeah. that would have been like. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't go to that one, unfortunately. But uh, yeah, it was 1990, I think. Um, but standout games from back then, Jesus. Whew. No. <laughs> 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 I can't think of one. I think uh, one game, a four-all draw away at Hereford, that was a good game. Um, but that was a, that was a, the start of a new dawn for us. That was Danny Begara, if you've heard of him. Yeah. And he signed some pretty good players. Dave Frayne springs to mind. Chris Bowman. Um, he might even have signed Dave Sutton, actually. Or was that Terry Nolan? I can't remember now. But, but we had a good side. That it was the first side we had that was quite good. It was worth watching. We got a four-all draw at Hereford, which I think took us into the top four. And it was around October, late October, early November. So that, that sticks to the mind. Um, the day we opened the new main stand, that's... Well, it's probably an old main stand too, but to, to me, it's a new main stand. That was about 93, something like that. And there was a game around there. We beat, oh, I think it was beat Lincoln, or I think it was Lincoln. We beat them 5-0. And Flounders scored from a halfway line. A bit like that goal that the Stockport fellow scored against us. So that, that, that sticks in the mind. Um, but other than that, it's most of it doesn't stick in the mind at all until Keith Hill took over. <laughs> Try to forget Mm. Um, you, you mentioned the, the new main stand there um, just how much has the ground changed during your time I think you said there that the Wilberts Lane used to be a terrace the Pearl Street used to be a terrace I bet it's like yeah, a it's, now isn't it yeah Sandy Lane's pretty similar uh, the steps are the same it's had, it's had a new um, new crush barrows a new roof new turf it's a bit like um, who's it off um, Only Fools and Horses is broom it's yeah, a bit like that cool. <laughs> triggered, triggered broom, that's it. It's a bit like that. It's had, everything's new, but it's structurally still the same. That's, that's the only bit that hasn't changed. But the old main stand, and again, going back to about 1990, and again, it wouldn't happen to, in today. If it happened today, there'd be uproar. It was, um, it's like a little paddock terrace at the front, and the seats were set back, which is quite common. Um, it was quite common back then. Um, and Keith Welch sliced the clearance from Sandy Lane. And it landed on the old main stand roof, which was made out of asbestos. And a, a chunk of the roof fell out and landed on a startled old lady sitting below and sliced her head open. Jesus. So, we, so the game didn't stop. We carried on playing, but St. John's and the ambulance had to turn up and carry her off. 
There was a little footnote to the Observer saying what had happened on the Wednesday. Saying, oh, she's made, she had to have six stitches or whatever, but she's made a full recovery. But in today's society, the big feathers blame as a claim and all that sort of stuff. But back then, it was just so poor bugger. <laughs> Health and safety nightmare, eh? Um, Francis, uh, one thing that I de- definitely did want to ask you about as well was the, the Tommy Cannon era, because it's something that I've obviously heard of and I've heard sort of the headlines from that era, but I don't really know the full story because it's just from before my time and obviously the coverage that I find of it is, is pretty limited. So for those of us sort of who were around in that era, do you want to sort of talk us through what exactly happened? Well, the club was always living hands and mouth in the early, mid-80s. They generally turn in a profit of about 3,000 quid a year. So that gives you an idea of the budgets they were running to. And the chairman of that era was David Kilpatrick. And he always said, if somebody comes up with comes forward who's got money, I'll step aside. Now in those days, Cannonball were like Anton Deck today, so they were TV royalty back then. Um, Tommy Cannon came forward. It became a sort of a fashion of that era, because Elton John had taken over at Watford, and got them from the fourth division to the first division. So if you were a TV personality or a... Eric Morgan famous, at, at Luton. Yeah, he was Luton, yeah. So it was just it was really fashionable to get a football club. Like a trophy wife, it's like a trophy. Trophy Football Club. I mean, I can't remember who Rockshell called the trophy before. But anyway, <laughs> he, even though he was from Oldham, he decided on Rockshell for some reason. Um, and, he, and he came and bought a load of shares and took his place as chairman. But you knew something wasn't right from the off because the match day programme at the time was a picture of Tommy Cannon every week holding a scarf up at the standing lane net. And you think, what chairman does that? You could just tell it was a vanity project from the off. And he, I think he signed Eddie Gray as manager. I think I might be wrong with that. Um, but he gave him some money. We signed players for like 10 grand, which is unheard of for us. Uh, signed Mark Gavin from Bolton for 20 grand. Uh, again, that might have been our record signing at the time. And he had this idea that if he, you're going to smile when I say this, if he borrowed against the ground, he could invest in the team. The team had been promotion and we could pay off the ground with the extra money that we get from, from attendances. A bit like another club did maybe yeah. years ago. Yeah. And it's not a great business plan. Um, there was an EGM call by the shareholders who were aghast at the idea. And he was saying, well, I'm chairman, I'm, I own all these shares and what have you. I'm, I'm, I'm pushing it through. Bollocks to what you think sort of thing. And there was one shareholder in the room who was probably only about 15 at the time. I think he was called Edward Lord, but I might be wrong with that. And he stood up and said, actually, Mr. Cannon, you're not allowed in this meeting. 15-year-old lad, don't forget. You're not talking to talking to Anton Deck of that era. You're not allowed in this room in this meeting. Yeah, I am. I'm the chairman. Yeah, but you're not a shareholder. Yeah, I am. He said, well, not here, you're not. You put all your shares in your wife's name. It was called Eileen Derbyshire. So technically, you don't own one share in the club, so I'm asking you to leave the meeting. And he had to leave, and he got thrown out. And he resigned in a fit of pique after, straight after, after meeting. And Jim Marsh, I think, took over as chairman, if I remember rightly, as a temporary chairman. And then David Kilpatrick came back a bit later on. So it was basically just a young teenage lad who happened to have read up the articles of the association, who knew his rules and regs, and was able to trip up a multimillionaire he was chairman of his football club on a, on a technicality. 
And that stopped us borrowing against the ground and going to the same way as Barry have gone. Yeah. Good old tail, isn't it? It's incredible, isn't it, when you think, like, if he hadn't stood up at that time and, and sort of made his voice heard, God knows what would have happened to the football club. That we, we, yeah. we may never have been to watch a Rochdale game about that. Um, the course of history would have changed forever. Yeah. There, there must have been a lot of sort of sacrifices that fans made at that time, given where we were as a football club, sort of on the, on the brink of ex- inexistence, so shall I say, every season. Um, can you speak some more to that, maybe some other sort of uh, big sacrifices that supporters have made to make sure that the club stays? Yeah, there was, um, there was a time when fans would pay in and then immediately let themselves out and pay in again. So that, that wasn't uncommon. That was in the very early 80s when crowds were dipping below a 1,000. And it was considered that if we ever went to free election, we'd get thrown out on the basis that our crowds were 972 or whatever. So quite a few fans are paying twice just to keep it above a 1,000. And then in 1987, when Cannon was popped off, um, Graham Morrison Kilpatrick came back to the club on the board and we were revealed to have debts of 250,000, which today sounds nothing. But back then, it was like, how much? So there was fundraising going on left, right and centre, collections at the ground, um, local artist Jack Hamill donated maybe 20 paintings to be sold off at 100 quid each. I've got one in my front room, actually. Um, and it was just fundraising non-stop for a year. All the players got sold off. Mark Gavin went to Hearts, I think. Ronnie Coyle went to Wraith. We managed to raise about 45 grand in player sales. And somehow just kept the wool from the door, but it was close. I imagine that the directors put quite a bit in themselves as well. Um, I mean, they never told it, but I assume they must have done. But yeah, it, was, it was pretty close-run thing. Very close on the thing, but Cannon had been spending way beyond the club's means. Uh, luckily, he got found out just in time. It's amazing, isn't it, when you consider some of the things that you see people say on Facebook about the club now, <laughs> given back in 20, 30 years ago, people were paid twice for the tickets yeah. to the club alive. Really... To, be fair, to be fair, it was only a pound in back then. Yeah, well, yeah, there is that. <laughs> But they'd introduce things like um, golden goal tickets. I mean, you, you don't know what they are, but um, little, just anything, the sports club at the time would try anything just to raise a few quid. Um, they were all volunteers manning the shop. I mean, you'll know one of the, the dad, you'll know the lad of one of them. The, the dad was called Colin Smith Markle. So you'll know his lad who works in the shop, I think, now. Yeah, well, I know. He was one of those fans. There's, there's, I could name you dozens of them who literally made it a part-time job just to raise money. They go around the Catholic club collecting money, they go anywhere. Brickcroft, have, a, have an event, put, some, put something on and raise 100 quid. It was like, it's like a, a, a civic effort to raise the money to get us back on even keel, which we did. And fingers crossed it, it doesn't have to happen again at any point. Um, well, if it does, it'll be you who, have to, who has to get us out of the shirt. Uh, Francis, I was just going to say you could shave your hair for charity, Dean, but... Um... <laughs> <laughs> um, what what sort of era was it that you first became involved with the club and what was the journey to from that to becoming the first Ooh, ever executive? It was November 1991 I've not long left school I got my first ever job and it's, I don't think it's there anymore it was at a place called Pennine Packaging in Psych £2 an hour I thought it was loaded and I got made redundant after a fortnight and I got one hour redundancy payment so I was back at home feeling a bit glum. 
my mum said, right, you can't sit around doing that forever. Uh, you need to go out and get, get a job. So I didn't know what I wanted to do. She said, well, what you need to do is get some work experience. And she had a friend who ran a bank in Cheetah Mill, I think. And she said, I'll get some work experience in the bank. I said, no, I don't want to do that. I could do anything more I want to not do. Uh, so she said, why don't you go back to the football club and ask for some work experience? She said, she said they're always pleading poverty. I'm sure they'll, they'll welcome someone to come in. So I, I knew the commercial manager at the time. He was a bit of a Marmite character called Steve Warms, who probably none of you have met or heard of. And he was a, I liked him, but he was a character. So a lot of fans didn't like him. He wouldn't survive in today's football because of the internet, but back then you could get away with murder pretty much. And I just walked into the old, the old, old club shop in the old main stand and told him the situation. He said, yeah, I'll give you a week. And he had me leafleting and just traipsing in the streets for all sorts of menial tasks. Well, anyway, I did it all. And after a week, he said, you know what? I'll take you on as a lottery's assistant. And I'd be, I'd be about 20, 21 at the time, something like that. And Gold Bond at the time was on about 5,000 members, which in those days it was measured at 50p a member. Um, and he said, come in as lost resistance assistant, you've got to help build the Gold Bond weekly draw up. I said, right, okay. Um, I was on £120 a week. I got a club car, which is a mini metro that Steve Kinsey had been knocking about in, and he was a former player. And it was, the door were held on by string. It was absolutely, it was a proper banger. Uh, so he had me just driving around, signing up gold bond agents. And he gave me a target that if by the following Christmas, I got it to 10,000, I get a thousand pound bonus, which I managed to do. Um, and it just snowballed from there. Then I left, I left in, I started the fanzine actually, 93, I think it was, exceedingly good pies. And it's conflict of interest because I worked for the club and I was doing the fanzine. I mean, again, that wouldn't happen today. And after a while, he pulled me to one side, it'd be about 1994, and said, right, he said, um, the players are happy with you. You're slagging them off. <laughs> so he said, you've got a choice, it's either the job or the fanzine. So I said to him, I'll do the fanzine. Really? And he couldn't believe that I'd said that. So I, so he, he set me, I went out on my rounds, it was on a Monday, and I went out on my Monday rounds dropping all the gold bomb books off. And he said, while you're out, I want you to come back with the name of somebody you think should take over from you. I'm not going to get down on my knees and beg. If you want to go, just go. So one of the lads who did the fanzine with me was a fellow called Richard Wilde, who I got to know and got, and got on really well with, and he collected a new way. Um, didn't say anything to him. Got back to the um, club and warms and said, right, write on this piece of paper the name of the person you think should take over. So I wrote Richard Wilde down and Worms pulled out another piece of paper. He'd already written Richard Wilde on it. So he, he got the job and then he ended up doing really well at the club as well. And then that was 94 and me and Richard, we used to socialise together anyway. And we'd always said to each other, if Worms ever leaves, would you fancy going back as a double act? And we always said that we would. And in the summer of 1997, I think it was, Richie went to America trade teaching football to kids and students and the like And on the off chance that Wormsley went, he left me a contact number in America. And I got a phone call from Graham Morris in something like July 97, saying, Wormsley's going. He said, do you want the job? So I said, oh, I said, um, Funnily enough, 
me and Richard have talked about this, and they've both come back and run it together. Really? I said, yeah. He said, all right. He said, uh, well, the budget's not that big for both of you. I said, we don't know how much we want. He said, well, how much do you want? I said, well, what's the budget? I think we settled on about 400 quid a week each, something like that. And, and we got a car each, and the Mini Metro by now had been scrapped. So I ended up with the Vauxhall Nova. Uh, so you won't remember Vauxhall Novas. Um, so, so we started back, and the membership was on 9,145. It slipped since I'd left. But well, the National Lottery started, so that was that was a big competitor to us back then. Um, and I waited for the said run Richard and told him, he said, right, right, I've cancelled my university course. So I had his mum on the phone then, saying, oh, you've ruined his life, and all this sort of stuff. <laughs> but, uh, so, so he cancelled his accountancy course um, at uni, and literally just turned up about two weeks later, just wandered in, and we said, right, let's get cracking. And we did, and we had it up to... We, did, we devised a new way of running a weekly draw between us and we had it up to 17,000 within about ooh, a year and a half, which is the highest. It was that big that when we went to the Lotteries Managers Meeting of England and Wales or whatever, they always invited Richard to get up and speak to address everyone because they couldn't believe what we'd done. And I mean, looking back, it was hard work, but it, it was fairly enjoyable. But I couldn't do it now; I'm far too old to do it now. But knocking the doors every night, canvassing was yeah. It was, it was, we worked with uh, Peter Woodhouse, who I'm sure you know. Yeah. He, he was there, so we, we, the three of us were like three bloody musketeers. <laughs> um, but you know, we all we all chipped in and played our part, and, and it was just great every week to see it go up by a hundred or hundred and fifty or whatever. And just things like going knocking on pub doors, can, can you run a book for us? You know, I'm knocking on a I used to have one little uh, ruse I used to do. I used to go to like um, where there might be a large workforce, whip and bone, back in the day springs to mind. And I'd walk around the car park where all the employees' cars were. And if I found one with a Dale sticker on the back window, I thought, right, right, you're my man. So I'd walk in and say, who's the owner of this car? I got the number plate out. And they'll be like, oh, let's just check your systems. Oh, it's not such and such. All oh, right, is it any chance I can have a word with him? And they, they always thought something about his car. So they used to appear, well, what's wrong with my car? So all oh, come out and I'm looking at So I'm not here about your car, really. I'm here about the football club. Are you? <laughs> I said, how many people do you work with in there? 150. Do you fancy a free season ticket? Yeah. All you've got to do is get 50p a week off them. Easy sell. Never failed. So just little techniques like that that we used to use just to just to build it up and you know you, you get leads and then one of the leads I got was in my first spell from ooh, a box holder called Dave Jenkins I think he was called and he worked at Whittles Bakery in Littleborough and he, he came up to me and said oh he said uh, there's a fellow who works at Bakery he, he's always up for selling scratch cards and doing stuff I said what's his name he said David Clough so I said all right he said, here's his number. So I rang him uh, Monday night or something. And he goes, uh, Cluffy, yeah, like he always does. Um, I said, oh, it's uh, Francis from the football club. But he hadn't got any idea who I was. Uh, Dave Jenkins told me to ring you. He said, um, he said he might do some scratch cards. Number known to me, he collected uh, Littlewoods and Vernon's pools coupons around Littleborough. So he was always out on his bike collecting anyway. So I went to see him and he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
give them 100 scratch cards, and that'll be on the Tuesday evening. So Wednesday afternoon, I come in from my rounds and Wormsley's there. He said, that bloke went to give, give some scratch cards to. He didn't give them enough. So what do you mean he didn't give them enough? You, you bloody underestimated it. I said, who are you on about? He said, what about David Clough? He sold them all already. All oh, right, you're going to have to go back and give him some more. All oh, right, how many should I give him? He said, give him 200 this time. So I did. I dropped him off at his house. Thursday, I come back in. That bloke who's selling scratch cards, he said, <laughs> you didn't give him enough. He sold out again. <laughs> he was selling about 500 scratch cards a week. And then we, um, it was, I said to him, if, if we go on the streets where you collect your coupons, and knock on the doors asking him to join Gold Bond, would you, would you collect it in for us? He said, yeah, of course I will. So he gave us a list of streets he went to, and it was like A4 page, full on both sides of streets, like all around middle of Littleborough, Hare Hill Street, Victoria Street, all around that. Um, he went up as far as, um, oh God, what's it called? The Oxen Plough, if you know that. He went up as far as the summit, summit in Littleborough. Up to like the raking, he's covered. He covered all of Littleborough, but it's huge, huge territory. And we spent about two weeks canvassing up, and before we knew it, he was collecting in from about ooh seven hundred and fifty members a week. So paying in for five hundred scratch cards a week, he'd sell five hundred quid worth of Christmas straw every year. Um, he was just constantly out on his bike collecting and. That's all he did, and he must have made the club for oh, hundreds of thousands. And he hasn't he got any family, so he left his estate to the club when he died. Yeah, better than a cup run. I think um, I think the word legend is perhaps um, overused a little bit in football, but it's fair to say that he was an absolute legend for the club, isn't it? No, oh, brilliant. He's, he never ever lost his um, his enthusiasm. The last game we saw was that Charlton game. But I say sorry, gone blind by that, but he was there. And he did actually cry at the end. 78-year-old man in tears could have stayed up. <laughs> Couldn't make it up. But he I remember he was in Fairfield Hospital when we played Tottenham. Um and it would have been the home tie, I think. No, it's the it was the way tie when at Wembley when we equalised one all. And they had it on Fairfield Radio or whatever. It was on the radio station, and when the goal went in, he like wanted to jump up and punch the air, but he couldn't because he was all wired up. And the only thing he could push was his panic button. It's all the nerves <laughs> flying down the corridor, thinking, oh, what's up with him? Burst in. Oh, what's up, Cluffy? He goes, what's up? Fucking rock sales equalised at Spurs. That popped up. He's <laughs> <laughs> like his crackers. <laughs> Brilliant. But he's a bit of a character. Definitely. Um... How, how did you go from that to, to sort of the role as the chief exec and what was it like being involved in like the board meetings and things like that? It's something that obviously we as fans don't really know anything about, if we're honest. No, I didn't know anything about it either. There was no training for it. Um, I got called about, oh, 1999, something like that, by uh, Graham Morrison. He said, we want to streamline the way the clubs run and get someone in who could run every department and then that person will be the link to the boardroom. So you'll get the information from the media department, the retail and so on and so on and filter it all through to us and then we'll tell you what we think. So I said, yeah, all right, then I'll do it. And they give me a fancy title. Bearing in mind, I've only been doing the fanzine seven years earlier. Um, and 
I remember going to my first board meeting. I made a note of the date, actually. September 2000. And there have been rumours all week. When did you lot start watching? Were you watching in 2000? Yeah, I think I would have just been going about then. Yeah, that would have been when I first started. Just probably right, well, 10 years then. Well, there were rumours uh, flying around all week that we were going to sign a player called Martin Carruthers from South End. Oh, I remember that, yeah. To part of the client <laughs> And I also wanted to move from the old club shop to where the club shop is today. It didn't always used to be there in Pearl Street. It used to be around the main stand side. And I, I asked uh, Graham Morris, I said, look, I think we'll do better if we move, if we move to, the, to the bigger premises. You know, we're expanding department. We're making enough money. And he said, well, you have to come to a board meeting. You can't just do, spend money like that to, to you know, um, a moving shop. That's one for the board to decide. He said, come to next Monday's board meeting. So I did. And in the car park, I bumped into David Kilpatrick. This is the nearest I'm ever going to get to how contestants on Dragon's Den feels, by the way. <laughs> so I, bumped in, I bumped into David Kilpatrick. And we went into the foyer. And he pressed the lift button, which I thought was really weird. And so I said to him, I said, oh, your legs are not so good. And I can't, I can't repeat word for word what he said because you'll have to edit it all out. So I'll leave all the swear words out. And his basic argument was, when we built this stand in 1992, health and safety made me put this lift in and it cost me 25 grand. So every time I was a board meeting, use the lift so I can get my money's worth. It's about time we got to the top and we walked into the boardroom and the tables were in a horseshoe and there's like smoke in the air coffee percolated bubbling away in the corner club set with a, with a notepad wanting to take notes and one of you parking was sat in there so parking manager and all the directors are all circled around basically captains of industry from from local businesses i mean they are the cream of the crop really and he said kilpatrick said, right I'll, I'll, I'll get the meeting started we'll start off with parking he can say what he wants to say then he can bugger off uh, because he lives in Retford or somewhere down there so Parkage said, right, I think we've got a chance of promotion this season. He said, but Platty can't do it all on his own up front. We need someone up front to take the workload off him. I think I've identified a player who falls in our budget, but Southend want a fee for him. He's called Martin Carruthers. So I've come here to ask if I can sign him. And Kilpatrick said, well, how much does Southend want? He said, I think 70 grand will get him. So he looked at me and said, right, when you come in tomorrow, Fax an official offer to South End for £35,000. And we'll see how we get on with that. He said, write it down, not a penny more. To write down 35 grand, so I didn't forget. So anyway, so I was out and parking went. And he said, right, Francis, what do you want to talk to us about? I said, well, we've got the old club shop underneath where we are now, but it's so small, and it was small, I don't know if you remember it, but it was tiny. And you can fit about four people in at a time, which on a match day is no good. And I said, we've got this empty space in Pearl Street that's just sitting there doing nothing. I could convert that, but it's going to cost about 30 grand with shop fixes. I've had an architect look at it already. He's done it for me as a favour. And he's worked it all out. He's done some drawings. And he said he could have it done within six months for 30 grand. Fitted, done the lot. And Kilpatrick said, right, I think we'll have a show of hands on this one. So he just announced to the other directors, if you're in favour of Francis doing this, put your hand up. And I'm thinking, oh shit, crikey. Um, so everyone's hand went up bar one. 
And we all looked at the one, it was Jim Marsh, if you remember him. And Kelly said to Chris Dunphy, who sat next to him, oh, Jim's fallen asleep again. And the, the one word I took from that more than any was the word again. <laughs> so it happened every week. <laughs> so he said, he said to Chris, he said, um, wake up Jim, will you? So Chris leant over and gave Jim a sh shake on the shoulder and he come round, looking, oh, where am I, where am I? And Kelly goes, Jim, we're having a show of hands, what do you think we should do? And he put his hands straight up in there and shouts out, oh, I think we should sign him. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I was about to burst out laughing and I, I got, I noticed Chris Dumpy glaring at me with a glint in his eye, which said, don't laugh. So I didn't. <laughs> I got the green light to move club shops where it is now. What sort of things were you doing sort of on a day-to-day -day basis in that role as well? Because, like I say, it's not really something that I would be, I think most fans will be actually aware of. Ooh. Well, one of the one of the jobs was managing Hornets, which was very difficult. Because um, at the time, they obviously had half the stadium, but didn't pay half the bills. Uh, so it was getting around them all the time. That was difficult. Um but it's things like, things you won't even think of, it's like making sure there's, um, I'm not even sure there are, female sanitisation bins in the female loos. Little things like that, you wouldn't even dream of that someone has to make sure it's done. Um, but things like making sure you've got good contracts with, with the pie people, um, catering for the restaurant, getting the stand sponsored, um, Raising money for a tractor for the groundsman. I mean, it covers everything, really. Doing kit deals. Um, oh, making sure the lottery still produce the revenues. Um, basically, making sure that whatever we did made money. Yeah. And coming up with new ways to make money. So, for example, one of the ones that I came up with was um, to... Do you know what I mean by a race, a race horse syndicate? Yeah. Right, well, imagine a horse being a YTS player or a youth player and you invite people to bet money on him making it. So you could, you could buy, for example, at the time, I think Joel Thompson was the first one we did, um, and we got about three or four people who bought a piece of Joel Thompson for about £1,000 or £2,000, whatever it was, I can't remember now. And the deal was that if you made a first-team appearance, you got 500 quid. If you made 10 appearances, you got five grand. You got 10% of any transfer fee. There was also basically, if you pick the right player, you could make yourself 20 grand. Yeah. Um, but if you picked um, Scott Tanzer, you'd make nothing. So, <laughs> like 500 quid. So, that was one idea we had. And it's, I mean, I'm glad they don't do it these days. It costs us a fortune. But back in those days, no one ever came through. So, it was easy money. Um, so, that was one thing that we did. We got all the stand sponsored up. That was another thing we got done. Um, naming rights for stadiums didn't really exist back then so that wasn't anything we considered um getting season ticket sales that was a big that was a huge part of it because back in those days we had oh god about 400 season ticket holders and but one of the board meetings said to me what you could double the number of season ticket holders we've got didn't tell me how to do it just said you've got to do it and i thought oh what we're gonna do it's a bit of a tough call that you know you only got like 1,800 fans, maybe 2,000 by them actually. And so I called all the, everyone together, about a big meeting in the boardroom later that week. I said, right, collectively between us all, we've got to sell 400 more season tickets 
what we're going to do. Everyone looks around at everything, and it's like one of those like, moments where they go, ooh. So luckily, I'm in my background's in sales, so that's all right. So I said, right, where are the people who are likely to buy a season ticket going to be on Saturday? Um, some bright old spark pipes. Well, they'll have been in Rochdale watching the game. I said, exactly. So there's going to be maybe 1,800 home fans. 400 of them have got a season ticket. 1,400 of them haven't. Who are they? Don't know. We need to find out. And it's like, well, how are you going to do that? I'm going to ask them who they are when they come in. You what? So we'll ask them when they come in who they are. We'll get some leaflets done and get people to fill out the details. No internet back then. Get people to fill out the name and address and phone number, that sort of thing. And pop it in a, in a bag and we'll enter it onto a computer on Monday morning. She's this old woman, Doris, in the corner doing a knitting. She said, oh, I wouldn't do that. I just walk around the table at five to three. I'm not, I'm not messing around, filling a form in. We all thought, hmm, she's got a point. So we thought, we'll make it a competition, put a leaflet in, and we'll draw it out at half time. No, we draw out wins a free season ticket. Well, bloody hell, people were filling forms out twice. It was ridiculous. Uh, so we, we took in, we actually took in just short of 2,000 names and addresses. And we thought, right, we can write to them now. No, the club had never written to ordinary family before, ever in the club's history. But we knew who they all were and where they all lived. So it was Richard Blessed. We went to um, the printer on Entwistle Road, I've forgotten the name, and he sat there for about a week typing in all these names and addresses, and he could print them out for address labels. Still had sticker ones, he stuck an envelope. So eventually he reappeared about a week later with this roll of address labels on, on a huge roll of them, and we got some envelopes. Bought some envelopes from WH Smiths or wherever, and we got a brochure done. And the club said, "Oh, you can't do a brochure. We can't afford five hundred quid for a brochure." I'm like, oh, "Bloody hell, I've come this far. <laughs> if it's another four hundred season tickets, I think you'll get your money back." No, you've got to get an advert on it for five hundred quid, and then you can print them. And luckily, Carcraft came to the fore on that one. They took half of the back page um, advert five hundred quid, so they covered the cost of printing it. So we got the leaflets done. Oh, the brochures. It was like an A4 glossy one. I had a picture of Wayne Evans on the front. And put the brochure in this white envelope and put a sticker on. I said to Doris, I said, look, that's all right, isn't it? She said, oh, I wouldn't open that. I said, why not? It looks like it might be from the waterboard. Well, no, that'll be going straight into the bin. Really? So I had a word with the printers, and he said, why don't you put that picture of Wayne Evans on the front of the envelope? So when fans pick up all the posts, they know immediately which letters from the football club, and they'll open that one first, which is what happened. And then um, we, we posted them all out, and the response was amazing, unbelievable. I remember on the Saturday, we did, we did what was called an early bird for the first time. I mean, it's commonplace now, but back then it was brand new. Country season tickets, things like that, were all brand new that season. So it'd be the 2000, 2001 season. And I remember... Um, because there, no, there was no internet or anything back then, really. And I remember the, on Saturday when I came in, there was a queue of about 12 people queuing for a set. We've never seen a queue for things ever in our life. And I thought, right, here's a good chance for a bit of publicity. So I found every single person I could find, dog walkers, you name it, and I put them in this queue. So the queue jumped to about 30. Took a picture with a, with a camera, proper camera with a film in it. Got it done at Maxfield. Went to Les Barlow at the Arbor, wherever it was back then. 
said, oh, look at the queue for Sizzings, man, on Saturday, give this photograph. Back page of the album on Wednesday. Fans queuing around the block for season tickets. <laughs> That's <laughs> sent out. It's like that sort of uh, subtle marketing that people use. So if you, if, you, if you make people think something's running out, they'll, it's a bit like buying bog roll during lockdown. Uh, if you create that illusion that, you know, you need to go and get it, and we sold 1,200 that year. Brilliant. So those are the sorts of things that I got in touch with. But a lot of it was secretarial type stuff, which was a bit dull. But, but a lot of it, when they give you free reign to try your hand at marketing something or trying something different, that's where that's what I like to do because you can think outside the box and stuff like that and come up with ruses and, you know, you can do things with mirrors to, to create illusions to make things that look... You know, you see, you just, I mean, one day you might be in a position where someone says to you, right, I want you to sell this. And you've got to go up with a strategy to sell it, and it's not easy. The first question you ask yourself is always, who's going to buy this? That's always the first question you should ask yourself in sales. And that's a lesson to life to all you listeners. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one other thing I to touch on from a couple of years later was the um, the key tech debacle, should we call it? I, I believe you were involved in that, but it's again, it's one of those things that not all supporters will know about. Very few will know about this. Probably legally shouldn't tell the story, but bollocks to it. I've had my, I've had my furlough, Merlot, I'll get it told. Um, yeah, what happened was there's a fellow called Jim Fagan who appeared about, oh, I don't know, late, very late 90s, perhaps early 2000. And he's one of these fellows who had a different car every day Lamborghini, Ferrari, Porsche, you know, proper 40 grand car every day, different. And you're thinking, how many cars this fellow got? And, it was Les Duckworth at the time who we dealt with, who was the old sponsorship manager. And Les, Les was a really good bloke, fantastic Dale character. And this Jim Fagan had inquired about sponsoring the shirts. And at the time, Carcraft used to pay, I think, 18 grand a year. But they always said to us, if you can find someone else who'll pay more, take it and we'll step to one side. And Keytech offered something like 50 grand or 40 grand, something like that. And we thought, blimey, right, sign him up. So we signed him up. Um, and he took Les round. He had big offices in Whitworth where he claimed, and this is bear in mind, this is like 2000, he claimed to run the GPS tracking system for the New York police on all these computers, which may or may not have been true, but the thought of a place in Whitworth running New York police is a bit, mm, <laughs> just a bit, a bit fanciful in my view. Um, so anyway, he signed the dotted line and Gray Morris had him checked out or had his business checked out and said and said he had to pay half up front. So on a two-year deal, I think, he had to pay half up front and the balance within the first year. So it's probably an 80 grand deal in total. And at the time, the then chairman who was still there with Kilpatrick was looking to basically retire, I think. I mean, I mean he must have been in his 60s back then. Um, definitely in his late 50s. And this Fagan character who seems to have money falling out of his pocket seems to be the obvious natural successor. And everyone just thought he was the, he was the chairman elect. It was just everyone assumed that without asking the real questions, proper questions. And at the time, my brother lived in London. He was a Man City season ticket holder. And he used to come and stay with me at the weekends when City were at home. And... We were chatting one Saturday lunchtime and 
He said, is that Buddy Kilpatrick still running the club? I said, yeah. He said, crikey, he must be getting on a bit. I said, yeah, he's looking to hand over to this new fellow. We don't really know anything about him, but he's the fellow who runs, he's got his name on the shirts, Keytech. He said, oh, he said, um, what do you know about Keytech? I said, nothing. He said, have you got any information on them? I said, well, they've got an advert in the programme and it had his company number on the advert, if I remember rightly. My brother was a buyer for KFC at the time. Had a laptop and all these things that everyone's got now, but at the time it was brand new. Got his laptop out, looked at the company history and said, if I was a buyer, wanted to use this company, I'd run a mile. It's dodgy as hell. So what do you mean? He said, well, this, this Jim Fade isn't even a shareholder. It's just a front man. And he's had to borrow 10 grand to buy a terrace house in Whitworth often. And the, the accounts are late. They're not making any money. And to be honest with you, they look a bunch of shysters. I said, really? He said, yeah. So I went to the SEM, had a pint, but I bumped into um, Mr. B, we'll call him. And I told him the story, and he said, oh, that's a bit worrying. So we need to find out more about him. I said, I know we do. Why are we going to do that? He said, let me think about it over the weekend. I'll give you a shout on Monday. So I'm in the office. I work from home, so I'm in the office. Um, my phone goes, it's Mr. B. He said, right, he said, can you get around here in an hour? And I said, yeah, yeah. He said, why? He said, I've got a private investigator turning up. Bring £600 in cash with you. It's going to cost us 1200 quid. this. I said, you what? <laughs> he said, bring £600 with you in cash. So I did. Went to his, got into his front room. Sort of furtive character appeared under a brimmed hat. Uh, with a long brown coat, a lot, like a World War II spy, coming in the front door, and he sat down and we said, look, there's this fellow who runs this company, we think he's going to be taking over as chairman, and we think his um, motives aren't quite what they should be, shall we say, and we want to find out all about him, who is he, where's he from, what's he, so anyway, so he said, right, £1,200, I'll give it a week and I'll come back to you. So he came back to us a week later and he said, right, I've been through his bins, I've done this, I've done that, <laughs> he had access. And basically the findings were that all his cars were on the tick. They're all like on HP or whatever you call it. He was, uh, he had two identities, two birthdays, two different addresses in Wigan, if I remember, or Standish or somewhere over that way. So there was basically two of him, you know, so it's like a buddy, you're thinking, oh, that's a bit strange. Um, and he said, he said, he's got, he hasn't got any money. He doesn't own anything, and I've no idea why I'd want to be a football club chairman when he's got nothing. And we presented the file. The file was about as thick as the yellow pages. It was a proper thick file he'd done on it. And I rang up Chris Dunvin and said, oh, I need to, I need to uh, come and have a word with you. So I presented him with this file. <laughs> we met in a regal moon, actually. Um, and I talked to him through it all, and he said, first thing he said was, do you know what? We all thought it was great. And my wife has always said to me, there's something not right about him. It was the first thing he said to me was Chris, and I'll never forget that. Um, and he said, and you were right. So basically they chased him away. And that's, so we could have fallen into, I was, the, I was the Edward Lord of that year, if you like. <laughs> um, so it was just one of those things that we felt we had to do, just to make sure that we're not getting involved with someone who's a bit dodgy, and he was dodgy. No, I've got, I, I can't prove it to you now, but that's from memory. Yeah. That that shows, though, doesn't it, just how close the club has come at, at times and how sort of every lower league club is uh, 
attracts these sort of people at times and we have to as fans we always have to be wary of that and I think that's something that Dale fans are perhaps more than than other supporters um Francis I just wanted to end with a couple of more questions that we asked Mark last time when he came on but just about um sort of your memories from again from before our time we did a few podcasts in the summer our favorite players and things like that so I just wanted to See if there were any players that you felt deserved a mention that obviously were before our time that we could have mentioned. So, any of your favourite players from that era? Yeah, you asked him to pick his favourite team, didn't you? Yeah, I think we said favourite defender, favourite midfielder, favourite forward, and favourite keeper. Yeah, so if you wanted, if you wanted to do that, that'd be great. When you say favourite, do you mean favourite or best? Uh, I think. Well, when we did our all time, I think we were going for the best. So we're going right. For- best keeper, Conrad Logan. Uh, best defender, ooh, um, it's got to be Craig Dawson, I think. But I, I want to say Alan Rees, but it's got to be Craig Dawson. Uh, best midfielder, ooh, best midfielder. Um, ooh, now he's gone blank. I'll come back to that in a minute. Best striker, ooh, Ricky Lambert. Um, best midfielder, ooh, crikey. I'm going, to be right. I'm going to say Dave Frain. Older fans will know exactly why I've picked him. It's not a name that I recognise if I'm being honest. Yeah, you won't, you, won't, you won't know the name, but we'd have that many bad players for so long in the middle that he came. I think he was nicknamed something like Roy of the Rovers or something. He, he got some nickname in the local press, which was like Roy of the Rovers, and he was just proper midfielder, old-fashioned goal-scoring midfielder. He was the sort of player that Callum Camp should have become. <laughs> you love, you love upset Ryan with that. <laughs> he doesn't believe that there's anyone who could possibly be better than uh, Callum Camp. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, Callum Camp should be in my reckoning for best midfielder. It'd be, it'd be in the top five, definitely. See, <laughs> last I've been watching a lot longer. <laughs> Last question for you, Francis. Uh, something that we've we've all discussed and what we asked Mark as well. But what's been your favourite moment from being a Rochdale fan over the years? Um, I'm not going to pick a game because it's too easy. I mean, the favourite moment in a, in a split second was Ben Muirhead's penalty. Well, that's that's just one second in 40 years. I think my favourite moment is a, a wider question. When I started working for the club in 1991-92. The first thing that struck me was the help that random fans would offer. They just walk in and say, is there anything I can do for you? Just random things. I mean, people like Jerry Dawson, who you may or may not remember, you know, he'd te- he used to paint his goal on every Saturday. He'd always take me to one side. You know, he'd turn up in his big saloon car at about half ten. And he always used to wear sunglasses even in the middle of December. And he said, oh, what are you doing this week? How can I help you? I said, oh, I've got to sign up pubs in, in Rochdale for the gold bond. I'm going to start with Castleton. He said, oh, I'll live that way or I'll give you a hand. Really? He said, yeah, don't go next week. The weekend he came after with a list of pubs and landlords' names. I've been around them all. They've all said they'll do it. Just go around them all. Tell them I sent you. Now, a fan won't do that today. Um... You know, like um, Fred Pilkington, whose older fans might just remember, turned up one day, he said, oh, I'm a retired decorator, what can I do for you? And by the end of the closed season, he painted all the toilets, and all the charges were the cost of the paint. Uh, painted the back of the sandy lane, 
wall. Um, the front presenter said, what would you want to paint that 40 foot wall? He said, a 40 foot brush. <laughs> so so we, we used to go down to Lancashire Wallpaper and Paint to get the paint. That was Rob, Rob Briley, a former director. That was his business. And he'd say, oh, from the football club, oh, we'll put it on the account. And I'm, I'm sure we never got invoice for it. It was that type of existence. So Rob, I, bet, I bet Rob would have seen the invoice and thought, nah, put it in the bed. They can have it. And we painted the whole ground, Fred did, uh, basically for nothing. You wouldn't get that these days. And I remember a fella called um, John Holt. He lived in Whitworth. And I was in the old, old, old club shop in the old main stand. And this old bloke walked in with a flat cap on him. He was in his 60s or 70s even. He said, uh, oh, you knew, lad? I said, yeah. So anything I can help you with? And I was wiggling the, this wooden drawer under the counter. It got stuck. It was the page, it was a money drawer. We didn't have tills back then. Um, he wouldn't open. He said, oh, I'll come and have a look for you. So he come round, had a look at it and wiggled it free. He said, it's not right. He said, the drawer's too big for the hole. He said, you need a new drawer. I'm like, well, I'm going to get one of them. He said, well, as it happens, I'm a retired joiner. And he pulled out, he pulled out something that all men carry with them, a tape measure. He measured <laughs> up and turned up about three hours later with the drawer that was a perfect size. Like he'd been out and bought the wood. He'd done it out of his own time and money. So what do you want for that? He said, oh, I don't want anything for the football club. So I'll be standout moments watching Dale and what other fans will do for the club out of the sheer generous nature. But you weren't expecting that as an answer, were you? I wasn't, to be honest, but it's a great answer. Good one. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's an emotional, an emotional one, isn't it? <laughs> Francis, thanks very much for joining us uh, tonight. And give, give, I'm sure for some older supporters it would have been a, a good trip down memory lane, but for, for supporters like, like ourselves that are a bit younger, it's good to sort of learn a little bit more about the history of the club, so I really appreciate you taking your time. My right? pleasure. Yeah, nice uh, We'll reconvene uh, next week to chat through the crew game, if it goes ahead, of course. But for now, thanks for joining me, Ryan, Chaff and Luke. Nice one. Nice one, Dean. And we'll catch you next time. Up to Dale. I remember Ben McCarroll saying once that it's all well and good being good in the changing rooms, but you're paying somebody fifteen hundred, two grand a week. You can go and buy a Kevin Bridges DVD and put it on, and that'll yeah. be good in the changing rooms instead. <laughs> That's the most BMAC thing I've ever heard. <laughs> BMAC could be funny on here. BMAC could be good in the changing rooms, actually. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>